All right. Book of Romans. You're going to think, we're going to chapter 10, but we're not. We're not going to chapter 10. Okay. I want you to think about something, because I think this is important, and I think it'll fit perfectly with what we're going to be doing today. If I was to give everyone a piece of paper, I won't do it today, but you know, in times past, I have no problem handing out a test, but I'm not going to hand out a test. But if I was to give you a piece of paper, and I want you to write down different titles or names for Jesus, or different things that describe him. I want you to think some things you would write down. You probably would write things down like Savior, Lord, King, right? Okay, maybe the Lion of the tribe of Judah, right? You would probably, most, I think everything you would write down would, I, 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 bet, I I could be wrong, I almost want to test it, but I won't. I bet almost everything I got back would be very positive terms, right? Very praiseworthy terms. Things that would be great, things would be wonderful. But we're going to look at a concept that is very much attached to Jesus that may not be seen as, as positive, all right? Because Jesus may be Savior, he may be Lord, he may be all of these wonderful things, but he's also connected with the idea of stumbling or a stumbling stone. Something that causes you to, like if I was to trip over the pew, right? Something that causes you to stumble. Now, you know to stumble, depending on where it occurs, right? I remember when I was in a, teen- a teenager and I was in the mall and they had just waxed the floor, right? And I was wearing penny loafers and I come skipping through and boom, and boom, right in front of everyone else. And you're just kind of like, hey, I meant to do that. It's all good. Okay. It, it can be embarrassing. It can be humiliating if you stumble and fall in front of a bunch of people. We all know that, right? It can be a little bit embarrassing and you immediately look up and to see what? Did anyone see that? Did anyone see that, Right? And then when you, you know, get to work, everyone's like, it's on the security camera and I'm sending it to everyone's email inbox, all right? Because I want everyone to see that you stumbled, right? So it can be embarrassing. It can be humiliating. But in this particular case, it could have eternal consequences. And though, that is a bad kind of stumbling that leads to eternal consequences. So we're going to re- speak of and talk about Jesus being a stumbling stone or something that can cause one to stumble, or be someone that could cause someone to be offended. Does that make sense? And we, we, we kind of looked at it last week, but we'll go back to it. Go back to the book of Romans, chapter 9. We're going to try to finish up chapter 9. I, th- I know what you're thinking. We finished it last week, but we did not. We really didn't. We didn't do justice to it. We didn't do justice to it, right? We, we, we got to spend some more time in chapter 9. I know we've been in the book of Romans since 2019. I know you feel like we're never going to finish, but I, that's okay. All right? I, I'm not worried about it. All right? In fact, I don't know what your Bible says, but if you look at Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33, verses 30 to 33, some of your Bibles have a little section heading. Right? Well, mine does. And guess what mine calls this section? Israel stumbles. Israel stumbles. All right? Israel stumbles. Does does anyone else have a 
heading, okay? Some will, will place that, which tells you that they see that there's a stumbling that takes place. So let's read the verses and see if you can detect where the stumbling occurs. You ready? All right, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which follow not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, have not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. So Israel stumbles, and what causes them to stumble? The stumbling stone. What is the stumbling stone? Next verse. As it is written, hint, what does that mean? Something, uh, Old Testament, very good. That's an easy way to say it. As it is written, just the Old Testament. Something in the Old Testament. Right? And what, what does it say? That Paul utilizes something from the Old Testament. And what is, what, what is, what is written here? Behold, I lay in Sion, uses an S here in the King James, in Zion, a stone. Who laid a stumbling stone? Who laid the stumbling stone? Who left this here? Have you ever yelled at your kids when you're walking through the house and you step on stumble? Why didn't you leave your toys in the middle of the floor? And then everyone claims, I didn't do it, right? It just magically got there, right? You've probably all done that. Or when you run over something in the driveway, you're like, was that a kid or was that the toy? Like, Who left their stuff in the way? Well, who put this in the way? Well, 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 we'll have to determine. We'll have to determine, but I think it's a good question, right? As it is written, behold, I, whoever this I is, lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So whoever this is speaking of, it becomes a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Something that would cause you to stumble and something that will cause you to be offended. Now, we don't like that being offended in 2022, do we? If someone is offended by something, what's the call of action in 2022? Delete it, cancel it, censor it, silence it. We don't want to be offended. But here, this verse is saying that there was something placed there that caused who to stumble? Israel, and it offended them. What was it? Well, we, we need to go back and do what? Let's figure out what in the world is going on, right? right? Because you may be here and you may be one who have stumbling over the same rock. You may be here and you may be the one offended uh, by the same rock. And you have to go, what would cause them to stumble and what would cause them to be offended? And how is this connected to Jesus? Well, well does anyone know what verses are being referenced here? Isaiah 8... Verse 14, oh boy, we got to go to Isaiah 8. Nobody wants to go to Isaiah 8. Because we got some kid name with a weird name in Isaiah 8 that nobody's going to pronounce correctly. Okay, all right, but we'll, we'll talk about that. And wh- is there another possible reference? Isaiah 28, 16, all right? Now, we'll prob- we're going to look at Isaiah 8 in greater detail. And then maybe next week we'll look at Isaiah 28 in greater detail. Or we'll see. Maybe we will not. But we're going to work on it. So we're going to go back to Isaiah 8. So we're going back to Isaiah 8. What's the goal in Isaiah 8? 
Identify the stumbling stone and identify the rock of offense. Now remember, this is very important. We, talked, we spent like six months trying to demonstrate how New Testament writers use Old Testament verses. And sometimes we're like, what in the world are you doing? It's, it's a whole hermeneutical thing that years of seminary and you're st- I still can't quite figure it all out, right? Because it's very confusing. But we're going to figure out what's going on. So what do we need to do? We need to understand a little bit of context here, right? So let's do this. Let's just start in chapter 8. We could go down to verse 14, but that would be wrong, right? We need context, so we're going to spend the morning trying to figure out the context. And you're going to be introduced to, and I would challenge you, if you have a kid, you want to use this name because uh, they will go to high school and just love you for it. Okay, here we go. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Mehor Shalal Hashbaz. Would you not love that name? Mehor Shalal Hashbaz. What a name, right? And what does he want him to do? He wants to write the name out. Basically make a banner. Mehor Shalal Hashbaz lives here, right? And you're like, okay, what? That's kind of odd, right? Now just when you, if you've ever read Ezekiel or Isaiah, you know constantly the prophets are told to do very weird things. And you're kind of like, what? Okay, first of all, why? Who, what, what's Mayar Shalal Hashbaz? What's going on here? All right. And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerbekiah. All right. Another weird name, right? So he takes witnesses. So this is a weird thing. Hey, guys, come on. You got to come to my house. What are we going to do? We're going to take a big banner and we're going to write a name on it. And you're going to be witnesses. And you're like, what is happening here? Okay, uh, Isaiah, just, uh, I got better things to do, but okay, I'll go watch you write the name. Oh, that's great handwriting. Like, I mean, what? It's kind of weird, right? Agreed? And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. All right? So he writes the name, right? Then he has relations with the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a Son, and then said the Lord to me, Call his name Mehor Shal Al Hashbaz. Right? They don't get a choice in the naming. Now he knows why he wrote the name. He wrote the name because he's going to have a son, and that's what they're going to call him. Why? Why that name? Why? That's in a weird name? Does anybody know what it means? Mehar Shal Hashbaz means quick to plunder, swift to the spoil. Quick to plunder, swift to the spoil. The idea of plundering or spoiling, in other words, think of it this way, someone coming in and plundering, an army coming in and taking everything. That's not a cool name. My name means that an army is going to come and take everything. Now, in the Old Testament, especially when the prophets name their kids something, it's usually a bad thing, right? Because in most cases, no, well, it depends on the name. If the name points to something good, that's good because something good's going to happen. If they're told to give their kid a name that seems to imply something bad's going to happen, what's going to happen? Something's bad. So as long as the kid's walking around, you're like, oh man, 
Okay, just get out of the room, okay? Because I know what's getting... And we're getting ready to be destroyed. Uh, judgment's getting ready to come. Stop reminding me, you know? And you're like, hey, I'm not even going to say his name. Hey, you, come here, because I don't want to say his name. Because every time they said, may our shalal hashbaz, what are they saying? Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. It's a constant reminder that something's getting ready to happen. Does that make sense? Verse 4, For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before king of Assyria. So before this child can do what? Basically say mommy or daddy. Before the child can say mommy and daddy, what's getting ready to happen? Assyria is going to come in and destroy what places? Damascus and Samaria. So, hey, this is what's going to happen. You've got the child, you know his name, and before he can say mommy and daddy, an army's coming in, and well, Assyria's going to start destroying people. And that would be a a troubling sign. That'd be a trouble. And I would like, well, what is the stumbling block then? What does this have to do with the stumbling? Oh, I know. The stumbling block is going to stop Assyria. I, I don't know. Is that the way it's going to work? Well, we're going to see. I mean, I mean, I know everybody knows the story, but have to try to tell it like you don't know it. Okay, all right, here we go. Verse 5. The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, uh-oh, right, he's going he's gonna to have him do something else. So what is he going to say? For as much as this people refuse the waters of Shiloh that go softly and rejoice and resin and Ramalia's son. All right, so... Now, God is going to say something about the people of Israel. All right? They, do, they, refuse to do, they refuse the waters of what? Shallow. They're refusing the waters of Shiloh. Think of it this way. The waters of Shiloh, and I, and I can't go through and expound every bit of this, but just for time's sake, just consider that the waters that would flow from God. The waters that would come from God. And instead, what did they rejoice in? Rezin and Ramalia's son. They're, they are looking, instead of looking to God, what are they looking to? Earthly rulers. To earthly rulers. Now, this is a time where there's, there's war. There's armies conquering. And so there can be fear. All right? Now, you may not understand that fear living in America, but in, if you live in Ukraine today, you would understand that fear because an army from another country is killing people in your country. It's a horrible thing to watch and a horrible thing to witness. They invade and they kill. Well, this was far common. I mean, it's been common throughout history, but it's very common here. So if you're in Israel, right, and Instead of looking to God, they start looking to earthly rulers. And on one hand, you want to judge them. Like, you should just trust God. It's easy to say that, but when you've got armies marching around, you're like, I wonder who could help us. I wonder who could help us. Trust God. No, I wonder who could help us. I need someone with an army. I need someone with weapons. So they've kind of placed their attention where? To earthly Individuals, Does that make sense? Right. Now look what happens. Now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory, he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. 
Assyria is coming and they're going to do what? Assyria is going to be described as what? A flood. Please note the contrast. The waters of Shiloh and the flooding waters of Assyria. The waters of peace or the waters of war. Right? You see the contrast there? Let me read from one commentary. Um, Isaiah is married, and in legal documents were duly witnessed and sealed. He even announced that their first child would be a son, and his name would be Mehar Shalal Hashbaz, which means quick to plunder and swift to the spoil. Since Isaiah's sons were signs to the nation of Israel, please note that's very important, all of his sons were signs to Israel. You, anytime you went walking by Isaiah's house and you saw his sons, you'd be like, oh, that was a, a sign of what's coming to the nation. So those kids walked around with these weird names, but it was a sign to everyone in the nation, hey, those kids are reminding us something bad's getting ready to happen. Right? Which is probably a lot of pressure on a kid to walk around with those kinds of names, right? It spoke of future judgment, listen, when Assyria would conquer Syria and invade both Israel and Judah, and when Babylon would take Judah into exile. A child would start speaking meaningful sentences about the age of two. So around 732 B.C., about two years after Isaiah's son was born, both Pekah and Rezin were dead, and Assyria had conquered Syria and begun to invade Israel. The army was quick to plunder and swift to take the spoil. In other words, it happened exactly like it was prophesied. Give this kid the name, two years later, boom. Now, we, we've, we've already studied this in the past, the dating and all of the issues with it. Okay, but just so that we can have that, all right? Now, listen carefully. They chose a flood instead of a peaceful river. The pro-Assyrian faction in Judah rejoiced when Assyria defeated, when Assyria defeated Syria and when both Pekah and Rezin had died. There was, a, there was a section in Israel that was pro-Assyria. Hey, Assyria are the people we need. We need to trust them. And then when Assyria started defeating all of the enemies of Israel, guess what they did? Yay! See, Assyria is who we need to trust. They're wiping out all of our enemies. This is wonderful. This is great. This is awesome. Was it? Well, here's what happens. These victories seem to prove that an alliance with Assyria was the safest course to follow. You would think that. Look, who's beating all of our enemies? Assyria. So who do we need on our side? Assyria. Let's do it. Who are they forgetting? God. God or Assyria. Let's go with Assyria because I can see them. Make sense? Right? So they thought an alliance with Syria was the safest course to follow instead of trusting the Lord, the waters of Shiloh that go softly. They trusted the great river of Assyria. What they did not realize was that this river would become a flood when Assyria would come and destroy Israel and devastate Judah. Hey, you're going to trust them? Fine. They're going to come in like a flood and do what? Destroy you. So this would probably be a bad idea to trust in them. So far, so good. All right. Now, go back to Isaiah uh, 8. If you look at verse 9, or verse 8, what we just read, and he shall pass what? Through Judah, he shall 
overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck and the stretching out of wings shall fill the breath of thy land, O Emmanuel. The, the land of Emmanuel is about to be filled with the flood of Assyria. Right? The, the, the land of God is going to be flooded by the Assyrians. Associate yourselves, O ye people, and you shall be broken in pieces. Give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. I think they're going to be broken in pieces. Agreed? Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. All right? Now, there's a a lot happening here. I can't take everything apart, but all right. A little bit here. God offered his people peace, but in unbelief they opted for war. They were walking by sight and not by faith. But Isaiah saw no permanent victory for the invading army. After all, they were entering Emmanuel's land, and God was with his people and would deliver them for his name's sake. Assyria might plan it, plan its strategy, but God would thwart its ever move. Now, we can get into a whole discussion on how to interpret this. Who's, gonna, who's being talking about being broken in pieces? Remember, in Isaiah, it can get really weird, right? You think you're talking about one person and you realize they're actually talking about someone else. We can say this. No matter what Israel did, they were going to be broken in pieces. But guess what? No matter what Assyria accomplished, they were going to be broken in pieces too, because ultimately they would be judged. Does that make sense? So in other words, you can come together and come up with all of your plans. What's ultimately going to happen to everyone? There's going to be judgment. There's going to be a destruction. All right? Sennacherib's army uh, camped around Jerusalem, certain of victory, but God wiped them out with a single blow. That's, we, we read that in chapter 37. All right? So we see kind of a basic idea of what's happening here. Now we come to verse 11. Now we're getting really close, yes? We, what do we want to know? The stone, the rock of offense. So right now, what do we have? Let's just summarize. We have Israel. We got a kid with a weird name saying that what's going to happen? Plunder and spoil is getting ready to happen. We know the Assyrians have defeated people. There's some within Israel like, yes, but then guess what's going to happen? It's going to flood into Israel and and destroy and and they're going to ultimately be, they're going to be judged. Right? So we know all of that's getting ready to happen. So you're like, okay, where does the stumbling block come in? Because I, I, I mean, what, if you're reading the story, who do you want to stumble? I want the Assyrians to stumble. But Isaiah, or in Romans, who's stumbling? Israel. So, so what happens here in, in this historical context? Everybody ready? Verse 11. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. All right, so he's like, okay, look. God comes to Isaiah, and he's like, look, you see these people? Don't follow them. Why? Because they're going to try to make an alliance with whom? The Assyrians. Don't follow them. Don't go after them. Stay away from them. All right, next verse. Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Hey, they're going to say a confederacy. They're going to do what? We've got to join with these people. Don't you see what's going on? We've got to join. Don't join and don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. They're afraid of what? Destruction. 
And they're going to then, because of their fear, join into a confederacy. You don't be afraid and you don't join in. You keep yourself separate. Does that make sense? Sounds good so far? Oh, we're getting close. We're, we're running out of room to figure out who this is. Verse 13. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Oh, that's a powerful verse. That, that's, easy, that's easy to say, right? It's easy, it's easy to say, hey, you live in Ukraine. Hey, there's the Russians coming. Now, I mean, if, if any of the young people, if you haven't seen any of the videos or what, you should just watch a little bit of it because you'll just see how horrible war is. It's horrible. Buildings are being destroyed. Young kids are being separated from their parents. They're watching either their parents die or the parents are watching their kids die. And this horrible thing that's unfolding right now in 2022, well, we're all sitting here worried about what we're going to have for lunch, right? They're, they're, they're worried about, if, are they going to even be alive, Right? They're even going to be alive. I don't know if you saw the photograph, um, a young teenager in Ukraine who uh, was about to graduate from high school. They were all going to dress up for their graduation. And well, their school got bombed and a lot of people died. So she took this beautiful picture wearing this beautiful red dress, standing with what's left of the school, which is nothing. It's just rubble. It's destruction. And that's her, the way her high school year ended with people around her dead and her school completely destroyed because of a war. So it's one, when you see that, you're going to be afraid, right? You're going to be concerned. And, and it would be a normal human emotion. But God comes and says to do what? What does he say to do there? Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and him be your dread. If you're going to fear something, fear God. Don't fear the armies. If you're going to be filled with dread, don't be filled with dread of the army. That's hard to say. Right? Because he's not saying, hey, I'm going to take care of it. He's already said they're coming in. Right? And we know what happens to the northern kingdom. What happens to the northern kingdom? They're taken into captivity by... By Assyria. Okay. And the southern kingdom, Babylonians take them into captivity for how long? Yeah, a long time, right? Now, that's easy because we're sitting here and it's history. We're like, eh, no big deal, it's not me. But can you imagine if you're in that situation? Right? You want me to fear you? How about you make them fear you? Okay? Like, oh, like you want me to fear you, make them fear you and make them go back home. That, that's, I mean, that's the question I would be. I know I'm not supposed to say that in church, but that's the question I would be asked. I'd be like, wait, you want me to fear you? Make them fear you and make them leave. But no, hey, bad things are coming. Fear me. So do we fear God more than do we fear bad things happening to us? I typically fear bad things happening to me more than I fear God. And you can sit there and judge me, but I bet you're the same way. So far, so good. All right, here we go. Verse 13, please note, sanctify the Lord, right? Or the Lord of hosts. Someone said, gave the whole name. The Lord of hosts, you see that? Right? Verse 14, and he, who's the he referring to? The Lord of hosts shall be for a sanctuary. 
God can be a sanctuary. What's a sanctuary? Safe place, right? You've heard of sanctuary cities or sanctuary counties, whatever, where people can go for sanctuary for whatever. And we can have a whole political discussion about that. But you, you understand what a sanctuary is. A sanctuary is where you can run to and find safety, right? You can find safety there. So God is, is saying that what? Sanctify the Lord and he will be what? A sanctuary. In other words, you sanctify God, he'll be your sanctuary. Now, that doesn't mean that bad things are not going to happen, but he's still going to be your sanctuary. You run to God for your place of refuge. You run to God for your sanctuary. Sounds good so far, right? But, now, the minute we see the but, what does that mean? It typically cancels out everything that comes before, right? Teenagers, if you ever apologize... Let me just give you a clue. If you say, I'm sorry, you, you, you just canceled out your apology. Okay? Let me, let me give you some counsel. Just say, I'm sorry, and leave it there. Okay? Even if you're like, but, 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 it was their fault. Just say you're sorry and just deal with it. Okay? Because, because that, as soon as that happens, the, typically everyone who hears it is like, okay, whatever. You're, they, they see that you're making an excuse. Even if you've got good justification, the but cancels out the apology, right? Because if you're going to offer the justification, then you're really trying to then excuse away the apology that you just made, right? We've all been there, right? So here, the but cancels out. What? Wait, so God is the sanctuary, but... Are you ready? So who's the... Now look, for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense. Who is the stumbling stone? God. Who is the rock of offense? God, how could God be a stumbling stone and a rock? Who, who's going to stumble over him? Well, the verse says, give me the answer. It's open book test. Don't you love open book test? For the house of Israel, both houses, that means Judah and Israel, Right? And please note, when it says both houses of Israel, that's not referring to the church. Which someone will then get to Jeremiah and say, see, it's the church. Okay, no, that's, that's not, all right? For a, next word? Do you see it in the King James? For a gin? What in the world is that? What is that? For a trap. Oh, God's going to be a trap? He's going to be a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and a trap, and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. How in the world is God going to be all of those things? I want you to write all of those things. God is going to be number one. It's open book test. Stumbling, a stumbling stone. Number two, rock of offense. We'll call it a trap. And a snare. What in the world just happened? How? What? How did God just become all the bad things? And who is he going to be a stumbling stone, a fence, and a snare, and a trap for? Israel, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, how is that possible? In the context, I want you to think about, how does God become these things? 
Oh, come on, thinking cap's on. Come on, this is fun stuff, right? This is why I love seminary and Bible college. And church, well, most churches wouldn't put it on you, right? Most churches, that would just give you the answer, but why would I do that? That kind of ruins it for you, right? You come to church. I, I, I see you come here to tell me, right? So tell me, right? What is it? What is it? What, what do you think the reason is? I've already given you the entire context. I've painted the picture. Nobody? All right. So let's, let's pretend you're in Jerusalem, right? Hey, guys, you see what Isaiah just named his kid? Mayar, Shell, Al Hashbaz? What in the world is that? Well, I, I guess an army's going to come destroy us. Oh, that doesn't sound good, okay? There's a lot of things going on. You know what I think we should do? I think we should team up with the Assyrians, okay? Because all this nonsense, we're going to get killed, we're going to get wiped out. There's Syria, there's all these other people who want to destroy us. We need to team up with the Assyrians, right? Well, but I think we should turn to God. Wait, you want me to turn to God? We should turn to the Assyrians. God says, trust me and don't join the Confederacy, right? And I think we should join the Confederacy. At that point, what does God become? You stumble, right? You stumble because God is like, no, 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 trust me. Ah, that's a big army. Okay, trust me. That's a big army. Trust me. That's a stumble. I'm, I'm offended. You wait. You want me to trust you? I don't know if you've seen what's happening, but people are dying. Ah, no, that's just ridiculous. God almost becomes a trap. Because it's not like God is saying, hey, guys, 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 guys. <laughs> You don't even know. They're going to get within like a mile and they're gone. He doesn't seem to say that. He says they're going to come in like a flood. You're like, well, if they're going to come in like a flood, I think we need a, you know, we need a a plan. God becomes the stumbling stone because God is saying to do something that goes against what? You got to hear this out. When we are facing a situation, our first thought is what? When we're facing a situation like this, what is our first thought? Action or faith? Action. This is super important because Paul's going to use this. Paul's going to use this, right? So I'm trying to understand why Paul is using this, right? Now I see the idea, right? Let me me read a little bit more from a commentary so you get an idea, all right? They chose a snare instead of a sanctuary, right? They, They chose a flood instead of the peaceful waters of Shiloh. They chose a sanctuary, they chose a, uh, a snare instead of a sanctuary. God warned Isaiah not to follow the majority and support the popular pro-Assyrian party. Even though his stand was looked upon as treason, Isaiah opposed all foreign alliances and urged the people to put their faith in the Lord. And you can read this in a number of places in Isaiah. The Jewish political leaders were asking, is it popular? Is it safe? But the prophet was asking, is it right? Is it the will of God? The people were like, hey, what's safe? What's right? What's political? What's expedient? And he's like, what's, Isaiah's like, but what's right? What does God want? And it's hard to ask what God wants. It is. It's, it's really hard because sometimes what God wants, 
It's not what we want. When you fear the Lord, you don't need to fear people. Okay, they go on and off for a little bit, all right? Uh, Isaiah compared the Lord to a sanctuary, a rock that is a refuge for believers, but a snare to those who would rebel. Now, you get the, you get the idea? Right? Does that set it up? So, here's Israel. What's their, what's their concern? People around want to do what? Destroy them. Some of them want to turn to who? Assyria. But Assyria is going to be what? A flood. Right? But God is like, I can give you the peaceful waters of Shiloh. Well, no, we'll take the Assyrians. Okay, you're going to get the flood. I could be your sanctuary. Uh, No, we don't want you to be our sanctuary. Uh, We want the Assyrians to be our sanctuary. Therefore, God becomes a trap and a stumbling block. Makes perfect sense? Now, we transition from, what, 700-something B.C. to today. How does it apply to us today? We'll go back to Romans. It makes perfect sense. Verse 30. What shall we say then that the Gentiles, which follow not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? All right. If we choose two people, all right, I'm just going to go with Twyla and Lydia again because they're, I, I could use some of them, but I don't know all their names. So, and I probably would embarrass them. But if you, we lose Twyla and Lydia, we're going to say Twyla is the Gentile, all right? And Lydia is the Jew, all right? Now, the issue is not so much the racial division here or their ethnic background, but the fact that one's a Gentile, one is a Jew. Now, in this context, especially in in the time that Paul's writing to Rome, Gentiles are looked upon as what? Dogs. Right? The the Gentile is the loser in this scenario. All right? The Gentile is the ungodly, unrighteous heathen who's self-seeking, cares nothing but what they want. They're just the ungodly. They don't deserve anything. They shouldn't even, I mean, you don't even want them in your house. You don't want them in your sanctuary. You don't want them anywhere. You want them out because they are bad, right? And Lydia is the Jew. And in this context, she, the Jew is considered what? One of God's people, a child of Abraham, godly, holy, and righteous. She goes to synagogue. She hopefully follows the Sabbath laws, right? She seeks to be godly. Where there's Twyla over there, doesn't bother to even get up to go to synagogue. Doesn't even know what the synagogue is. Could care less about Sabbath laws. She eats whatever she wants, right? She doesn't follow any dietary laws. She just does whatever she wants, right? And we sit back and we would be like, ungodly! And we would look at Lydia and go, ah, one of the Danzler kids. Always righteous and good. So conservative, right? Twyla, Pierce kid. Yeah, you know. Okay, I'm going to tell some stories about that, okay? Right? And we would all sit there and guess who, who would get, probably get the praise? Lydia. And Twyla would get the, yeah, yeah, the side eye and the eye roll and the sigh and go, did you hear? Pierce kid. Oh, wait, you're one of the Pierces, okay? Right? You get the idea, Right? Now, what if I was to tell you 
Twyla has obtained righteousness. Lydia hasn't. Let's, let's put it even in clearer terms. We take two kids up here. One kid goes to church, tries to do good, tries to do all the right things, stays away from bad things, stays away from all, all the things that everyone's supposed to do, you know, trying to do all the right thing. And they're trying and they're trying and they're trying. And there's a kid that doesn't seem to be always doing the right thing and doesn't seem to be trying. We would immediately look at the kid who's trying to do the right thing as the godly one and the one who doesn't appear to be doing the right thing as the ungodly one. And that's just the way we look at things, right? We judge things based off people's effort and what they succeed or they accomplish. Their efforts, what they accomplish, is how we view whether someone is good or someone's bad. Come on, the church has been doing that for 2,000 years, right? Good, bad, good, bad, because you did this and you didn't, and it's all based off a list of rules, right? Here's the rules, right? Here we go. You don't, you don't, bad, 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 good, bad, bad, good, Right? And typically we think we're good and everyone else is bad. But what if the one who doesn't appear to be doing good is the righteous one and the one who appears to be doing good is the unrighteous one? Would that cause you a little bit of offense? Some may even get offended that I'm using this illustration. Would that cause you to stumble? You're like, no. Because we go immediately to, they're not even a Christian. That's what we run to, right? Let's see what happens in in the text. That the Gentiles, which follow not after righteousness. The Gentile is not following after righteousness. What's another translation? And verse 30, that, they, that the Gentiles followed not after or not pursued. What's the word? Not pursued righteousness. Oh, now we know that word. Twilight didn't even pursue it. How in the world did she get righteousness? Now Lydia would be sitting here going, <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, I've had to do all kinds of things, right? I've had to do this and this, and my, my parents wouldn't let me do this, they wouldn't let me do that, and you're going to tell me Twilight, a Pierce kid? It's declared righteous. And I'm like, that's the way it works. Because what does it say? Everybody read it. It's open book. No one get mad at me. I did not write this. Okay. All the people starting to type emails online, just calm down. I did not write this. You need to contact the Apostle Paul. Okay. I don't know if he has an email address, but it's not mine. Right. That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have obtained righteousness. And how did Twyla get it? What? She got righteousness and she didn't go to church? She got righteousness and she didn't keep Sabbath laws? She got righteousness and she didn't offer a sacrifice? Now what's Lydia thinking? Oh, someone said it? Oh yeah, you have kids. Okay, clear, clear. She knows that for... It's not fair! Mom! Twilight just called was declared righteous. You even know how bad she is. I want you to take it away from her right now, Mom. And so Sarah calls Bobby. Hey, your kid is not righteous. How dare you? My little girl's the righteous one. She plays the piano. 
Have you heard Twyla talk? See, it, it takes a little bit. It gets personal when I start doing it. this. People get uncomfortable because immediately someone's back there going, you're telling me a Christian, you're telling me, no, a Christian has to do this. A Christian has to do this. Well, calm down because it seems like you're having a stumbling attack. Okay? Yeah, you're being offended. I didn't write this. God says that Twyla is declared righteous simply by faith. And Lydia's actions didn't do anything for her. Oh, it, I guess it accomplished one thing. Made her appear righteous before all of us. But guess what? Our opinion doesn't matter. Well, you say, are you sure you're reading this right? I don't know. Let's read the next verse. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, have not attained to the law of righteousness. She's actually following the law. She's following the law. I guarantee if I took all the kids right now and said, okay, here are the Ten Commandments. Right? Okay? Even if I, if I took all the kids right here, and I picked two, right? I said, here's one. They keep the Ten Commandments. The other one don't. What do you think about them? Guess what they would say? The one who keeps the Ten Commandments is good, and the other one who doesn't is bad. Come on! Someone's got something wrong. That's the way we teach it in church. Lydia would be like, Mom, I keep all of these commandments! Twyla can't even spell them. She can't even read them. She's trash. She's a dumpster fire. You won't even let her play with us. I know, I know you're a little older now for that, but okay, you get the idea, okay? I, I can't, Seth won't even let me speak to her and tell Big word. There's an imputed righteousness. There's a practical righteousness. What righteousness do you obtain by faith? Imputed. Because you don't do anything. It's an imputed righteousness. Imputed means accredited to your account. Right? It's accredited to your account. Here's Bobby, if he believes... The righteousness of God is accredited to Bobby. So before God, guess how righteous Bobby is? Perfect. He may not be in practice as righteous as good old Lydia back there. But before God, he may be righteous and Lydia may be condemned. Now Lydia's really getting upset about the story now. That's an imputed righteousness. And then there's a practical righteousness. And that practical righteousness is based off what you do. But let me tell you about all the things you do. No matter how good it is. No matter how wonderful you think it is. No matter how great you think it is. God sees it as nothing but filthy rags. And that's a very strong Hebrew word. And something that's not very pleasant to discuss. Your good deeds is nothing but filthy rags. And you're like, 
Who came up with this system? This system is complete garbage. God came up with this system. And I know it seems unfair, but you better understand how fair it is. Because if, it, if your getting to heaven had anything to do with your practical righteousness, you better go ahead and just start booking your ticket because you're going to hell. Because all, you can go to church, you can do everything right, you're still going to hell because you're guilt, you have a sinful nature that already, and you're guilty in Adam. You're guilty whether before you even commit an act. You have to have a, God, you know what kind of righteousness God demands? Perfection. That's why the Bible says, be ye holy as he is holy. Christians take that and go, hey, Bobby, you need to be holy as God is holy. What ridiculous thing is that? Bobby should say to anyone who says that to you, what should you say? First, I never can be, and if you think you can, you're delusional, we'll get you some mental help. But secondly, I am as holy as God is holy because his holiness has been imputed. That's what the entire Protestant Reformation was about. I think sometimes Protestants are more Catholic than Catholics. Next verse. We're we're, going to finish on time, I promise you. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the... Ah, now we connect it back to eyes. Do you see the connection now? I want everyone to go, ah. Do you see the connection? Israel. Hey, guys, just trust me. Don't find a confederacy. Don't try to pursue protection. Pursue me. Don't fear them. Fear God. Wait, that doesn't make any sense. Don't pursue righteousness by the works of the law. Pursue Christ by faith and the righteousness of the law is imputed to your account. Here's what happens when you believe in Jesus. This is absolutely the most, it's it's the craziest thing in the history of the world, right? Here's what happens. You are still a sinner. You're still messed up. You're still going to sin. You're still going to be selfish. You're still going to say, you're going to be disobedient. You're still a sinner. But here's what happens instantaneously the, every, uh, Jesus kept all the law and all of that obedience is accredited to you. His holiness, his righteousness is accredited to you. So you are declared to be perfect and righteous and holy even though you're not. It doesn't, we don't get an infused righteousness. An infused righteousness was like, Jesus now makes you godly. No, no, no. He declares you to be godly even though you're not. Is Twyla as godly as the good, perfect Lydia? No! Okay? Not practically. But guess what? Positionally, you got Lydia, you got nothing on me. I'm perfect. Now, you shouldn't do that, but okay. You get the idea. She's perfect, she's holy. And her position... Israel tried to pursue something other than God 
and it ended up destruction. If you try to pursue righteousness, not by faith, but by action and by law keeping, you will be destroyed. You will be judged because you will only have your righteousness when you stand before God. And you know how fast your righteousness was going to burn up when you stand before God? It already burned up. It's like, like, but but I I was nice to my brother. I was nice to my mom. It's gone. And the person who didn't do things always that great, guess what? Perfection. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not because we're good and faithful servants, because Christ was a good and faithful servant. That's the entire the Christian life. We are not judged by a practical righteousness, but by an imputed righteousness. That's why you can never judge someone's Christianity by a practical righteousness. Because if you do so, you're now de- you're, you're ter- determining it by an infused righteousness. Twala is to be judged by the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's why I can say that if she has placed her faith in Jesus, guess how I, I'm supposed to look at Twyla? New creature in Christ, old things are passed away, all things come to do. Is that true practically? Give me a break. The old is still there. But in, before Christ, perfect. Now you say, so are you saying you can do anything you want? The Bible doesn't say you can do anything you want. Right? Why, what should motivate me? Go to Romans 12.1 and we'll end. Romans 12.1. What does it say? Start with. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present yourself as a living sacrifice. God's mercy is what should motivate you. God's imputed righteousness. The Christian life is the impossible task of seeking to live out and practice what is true in your position. Is it ever going to be that way? No. Are you going to fall short continually? Because guess what? God imputes a righteousness. He doesn't infuse a righteousness. We we teach it that it's an infused righteousness. It's not infused. It's imputed. Now, you say, but someone could abuse that. Oh, they could. And I know you are. But I, I need, I need... I need, it's almost like we need, we feel like we need a spiritual gun. I got to have a gun. I need a gun because I got some people I have to shoot because I want to be able to say they're not a saved. Who do you think you are? Because you want to judge people based off their action instead of off their faith. Do they believe in Jesus and are trusting in him alone for their salvation? That determines their salvation. Not all of these lists of rules and tests. We've already seen it so many times everyone who gives the test to prove salvation, what always happens in those tests? First, anyone who's honest fails, and two, they always say, okay, you have to do this, but you're not going to do it perfectly. But, well, well, then your test becomes what? Meaningless. And no one can tell me what score I have to get on the test. Here's what I know. Give me every test. Throw every test at me. Throw it. Tell me I've got to love people. Tell me I've got to love. Tell me. Give me every test. And I will say, I've already accomplished that test because it was accomplished by Jesus Christ. It's already done. So take your test and get out of my face. You're, you're acting like the accuser of the brethren. Because that, I, I stand perfect in that. I stand perfect. 
Why was it, why is it such a stumbling block? Do we, do you like the idea that you can't do anything? No, we always want to do what? We want to do something. We want somewhat credit. This destroys any boasting because I'm saved not by my righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. So many young people think Christianity is about doing all of the right things. Christianity is about believing in someone who did all the right things because you never will do the right things sufficiently. So I trust in his finished work and then out of gratitude, I try to seek to fulfill and do the obedience that I can to the best of my ability, but it's always going to be what? It's always going to fall short because even the best work you've ever done is what? Filthy rags. And, I, and so for any test that someone gives you, do you see how fraudulent the test is? You say, you have to love God. Even your love for God is nothing but filthy rags because your love is corrupted. You have to love others. Even your love for others. You know how many times you love others and you do so for selfish reasons and you don't even realize it? For every test, you fail. And if you think you pass it, you're a liar. Not only a liar, you're crazy. You're delusional. You need counseling. You don't even see. I would argue you're spiritually blind. Because all it takes is, you can live that way for a while, but sooner or later, I mean, if you're honest, you end up like Luther. Going back to the confessional booth going, I'm I'm done, I'm done, I'm, I'm... I, I, I've, as soon as I confess, I walk away thinking, oh, there's another sin I need to confess. As soon as I walk away, I commit another sin in thought or in word or in deed or what I've done and left it. But Christ, all of his obedience is credited to you. Israel stumbled because they wouldn't trust Christ for righteousness. They wanted to pursue righteousness on their own. And there's a lot of Christians sitting in churches today who would rather be found pursuing righteousness instead of relying on an imputed righteousness. That's the connection between 8 and Romans. Isaiah 8 and Romans 8, right? 9, okay. I was like, wait, that would be cool, but no, okay. Yeah, Romans 9. All right, does that make sense? All right, we'll stop there. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. These are absolutely some of the most important concepts that we could talk about. I hope some may not be the thing that interests them the most, but I hope that you will help them remember some of these concepts because at some point in their life, I pray that it's brought to their mind because they need to understand these concepts for salvation. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us who may have, well, trusted in our own righteousness and our own pursuit of righteousness. Maybe today we would repent and trust in your, the righteousness provided by your son alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,